Hi, this is Eric Corey Freed. And Eve Blossom. And this is Care by Design. Today we have Jane Frederick, the president of American Institute of Architects. We talk with her about how fast the AIA responded to the pandemic and assembled different task forces to think about our diverse building types and what are best practices in our health systems and senior living and our office buildings and schools during this pandemic and how do we plan and move back into our buildings. Jane, it is so great to have you join us today on Care by Design. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I've been really excited to talk to you for weeks now during this pandemic because as the president um, of the AIA right now, you are a mover and a shaker. I mean, I'm just so impressed in what you've done in such a short amount of time. Obviously, it was not the year that I was anticipating. It was um, going into the year, we were 100% focused on climate action. That was the mantra for this year. The last event that I did in person, which was in early March, was the Climate Positive Summit out in LA with Architecture 2030. And really fired up about that. And then as we came, came home the next week, the world changed. I mean, the event, I was supposed to go to South by Southwest, it stopped and everybody went screaming into working from home. So it was a, a huge shift. And from, I started calling around the country, talking to um, component presidents. And that first week, everybody was just trying to figure out how do we move an office of five people or 500 people home? You know, how do we get the tech support for that? How do we do that? So we were, we were talking to them and realizing that we needed to step up our game at AIA to really help our, our members. So we were thinking about resources of that magnitude of, you know, how do you move working from home? How do you um, keep your business going? So we set up a, I set up a task force to, to help with that. Then I was talking to the um, disaster assistance um, group in AIA. And they had a call that I sat in on and Molly Scanlon, who is a uh, architect and a uh, scientist, she right now works in water quality. She was on the call and she was saying, you know, we need to really think about how are we going to take care of people in non-traditional healthcare settings. Um, she had been looking, watching in China and thinking, this, this is a pandemic. We need to get, get this figured out. You know, what is a 20th century mass unit? So I put together a task force and she chaired it. So it was uh, Molly, some other scientists, and a lot of healthcare architects really dug down into what is the, the best way? What are the critical things that you need to be looking at when you take an arena and turn it into a temporary healthcare um, facility. So they produced a document on assessing um, buildings that you could use. Um, what were the critical things? So they produced that one like in a week or so. I mean, it was really amazing. And that was so um, well received. The U.S. State Department picked it up and translated it into Spanish, Portuguese, and French. So it's being used around the world through, um, through our embassies. 
So then that same group were thinking about, I mean, how do we move back into our buildings? So they did a series of charrettes that focused on different building types. So we had architects, you know, K through 12 architects, we had um, healthcare architects, we had uh, senior living architects working with the healthcare architects and the scientists figuring out what are the pinch points when you go into a building, what is the spacing that we need to do, how do we review that. We have K through 12, we have um, office buildings because that's a, a big one. I mean, that was, it's sort of mind boggling to think about high rise office buildings and how you get people up and down the elevators. I mean, if you're going to the 70th floor, I mean, so, but office building is one of them. Senior living's one of them and retail spaces is one. And so those are out. All of this is available on the AIA website, which is AIA.org, um, which are all very helpful. Then we also put together a team that helped components on the state and local level work with their governors or their mayors to use these resources that we created, you know, so that they could get them out in the communities and people would know about them. We're seeing them referenced all sorts of different places, so that's good. I have been working on helping and assisting volunteering to scale testing. In doing so, people knew that I had been an architect in my past, and so without helping them test, they came to me and said, well, we want to go back into our offices. I had seen what you were you'd been doing and watching what you had uh, posted. So I grabbed the checklists. I use it for discouragement, not for encouragement. Because, <laughs> and so it's interesting because I was like, look, look at this checklist. Look how exhaustive. Look, look what you have to think about, about the air quality. And then figure out, do you feel comfortable? We want people to do it in a healthy way. So if it's, if, if it's not ready, if your building can't be ready, then yes, do discourage it. I mean, I think that's, um, I mean, even at the AIA headquarters, they're definitely not going back till sometime in the fall and they're not set a date then. If you were working in a big building, with mm -hmm. lots of floors and what have you, would they be connecting right now with their facility manager of the building or would they be connecting with the owner of the building? I would say the facility manager is probably the one most yeah. on top of it, that that's the one that you should do. But I know even with the AIA, we're working with our HR department because, you know, as you said, a lot of people may not feel comfortable going back to work. So how do you do the whole business planning part of it so that um, our, our headquarters is in Washington, D.C. and a lot of people, you know, they don't want to take the public transportation. So that's um, an issue, too, is just getting back to the building. Growing up as an architect or, or even as a boy wanting to be an architect, AIA always looms large in my mind. It's massive. There's 200 chapters all over the world, uh -huh. 95,000 members. You know, you hear stories that it was, you know, where it was founded by a bunch of old white men smoking cigars in 1857. Uh -huh. That persisted in my head throughout my career. And it's, it's been interesting to watch a transformation of an organization, not known for innovation, not known for sustainability, not known for diversity. And in the last, especially the last five years, amazing transformations taking place at AIA and all of them, as far as I know, led by women and people of color. 
we've had a couple of men in there, but um, what really happened about five years ago, I think it was six years ago, we changed our governance structure. So we had a board of 60 people and now we're down to a board of 14. This year is the first year ever that we have more women on the board than men. That's pretty amazing. Um, and that's made a big difference. We've been able to be more nimble. We have really um, focused, focused in. Um, it started several years ago. Well, you know, the 2030 commitment has been around for about 10 years, but about five years ago, we started saying that we, we can't be a mile wide and an inch deep. We really need to focus in. And last year, the board had decided at its board retreat in January that we were going to focus in on um, climate action. And then, the, um, Eric, as we were talking earlier, at the um, business meeting last year, there was the resolution that was overwhelmingly passed in support of climate action. And what's interesting in the pandemic, we were already starting to talk about how the pandemic was exposing the weak link in our health and especially in the communities of color. And so now when we move forward out of the, the pandemic, we're really looking at the intersection of climate action, health, and structural racism. And in that, in, if that's a Venn diagram, in the middle of that is really our sweet spot that we can move forward on. Yeah, I think you just announced also an initiative you're doing um, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter protests and, and more equality. Right. What the board voted um, recently was to make um, structural racism uh, of equal importance of our actions as um, climate action. So those are the two leading focuses that we have. What we're starting with the structural racism is looking at ourselves, how we do things, both as AIA as an employer and AIA as the institute. Um, but we're looking at our awards. You know, how do we give awards? What's the process? What's the requirement? Who's on the jury? About three years ago, we had we have a um, established a uh, equity and the future of architecture committee, and they came out with 11 steps of what we should be doing to how to move forward to be more equitable. And fortunately, we had started this work that we weren't just waking up today. Um, but they came out with a series of um, equitable guides. There's nine of them, and they're really helpful to um, for firms to use in their offices to talk about. They're everything from uh, work-life balance, pay equity, we need to make sure that they're as diverse as possible, and that um, everybody's voice is heard. I was on the gold medal jury at one point, and always on the gold medal jury as a former gold medalist, but when we were on the jury, the former gold medalist really bullied everybody and it was like there was only one voice on that jury and we need to make sure that the process works that everybody's voice is heard you know just not the most prominent person in the room i've had a lot of uh, recent conversations with brian lee i don't know if you know him from um uh co-locate out of new orleans he has a real focus on um uh, architecture um justice how do you bring in the community and make sure that 
everybody's voice is being heard when you're doing a, a building, not just who owns the building, if it's the city or the county, or but who actually is using the building, whose neighborhood it's in, how does that building um, impact the existing neighborhood. Um, so a lot of discussion will be going forward with that too. Uh, actually, last couple months as I've watched you lead, mm -hmm. and I find it fascinating at this time during this pandemic that the countries that are doing the best are being led by women. Can you tell me what it means to you to be in this moment at this time leading personally and also, you know, as the uh, president of the AIA? I'm really proud of the AIA this year. I think that we've really stepped up and done a lot that we haven't just um, just been overwhelmed and saying, well, our plans were shot, what do we do now? And a lot of that is we have a fantastic staff. They really have pivoted and doing their normal work and doing our, our extra work this year and, and recognizing how you're not, it's not about me, it's not what I'm doing, it's about all of us working together to get it done and to recognize all the great work that everybody's doing. When I started in architecture, being a woman in the field, and I know that you've had such a prominent, great career in your own personal company in architecture and design and awards, and, and, and now you're the president of the AIA and it's during this pandemic. And what would you just wish to see for the industry and for, for yourself? Well, I wish that we could wave the wand and have the AIA represent America like it should, that we would be the diverse community of architects that of the, the country that we serve. But unfortunately, it it's not that easy because a lot of it is that we have to make sure that we get um, children interested in architecture from diverse backgrounds. And there's a lot of great work going on out there. I don't know if you know Michael Ford with the Hip Hop Architect. He really has a lot of fun and gets a lot of, a lot of young people involved. So that. that's where we really need to, to start working hard is looking at our future. At the beginning of the year, you wrote an article for Architect Magazine. Mm -hmm. I imagine it was the kickoff to your term type article. And in it, you called for bold climate action. You even quoted Rebecca Solnit and said, don't ask what will happen, be what happens. Right. And then in the article, you wrote something that I, I loved and I, I sent it around to a lot of people. And it said, as architects, when we are at our best, we don't talk about the future, we create it. Mm -hmm. Then this happens. Can you think of a better time to redesign, rethink, reimagine transit, public space, retail, right. office? So are you... Are you using this as a chance for us to maybe rethink how architects can be vital? I hope so. What does justice architect look like? You know, how do you make everybody at home in the, in the public space or in that third space that is the space where you say hello to people, you, you sit at a cafe and people watch or you're in a park together, that how you come together as a community. I wanted us to dive in a little bit deeper in where we are right now when it comes to equity and housing with our policies with loans I, you've, you guys mm -hmm. have all seen the the percentages the differences um if you're black and we're going for a loan 
for a house versus if you're white, there's like a 30% difference, mm -hmm. um, if not more in some areas. We all know the term redlining, what's happened mm -hmm. in the past, what's still happening now. One of the things, just to go back a little bit, um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Dr. Mindy Fullerlove. She's a psychiatrist. Um, at, she used to teach at Columbia, now she's someplace else. But her specialty is the effect of the built environment on communities of color. And she's written a number of really good books. One of them is that I'm reading right now is Root Shock. And it's how throughout the urban renewal period in the 50s to the 70s, that whole communities of um, African-Americans and people of color were just wiped out for, they, it, they were um, removing blight is what the fathers, city fathers would say. But what they were doing was just destroying their communities and how that we go about repairing that, how do we go about making sure we don't do that in the future when you build a new arena or you're building a um, interstate because they always went through communities of color. So that's something that we really need to focus on the mistakes that were made in the past and how we can begin to heal those. Quite often with those projects, if they were going back in with housing, it wouldn't be um, housing that the former neighbors could former people in the community could even afford. So it's, that's one of the things that really looking at housing policies, that's, we've come out and I believe it's on the, um, our website is our architect's platform for this year. And that is for this point in time for the election, what is important and housing is a big part of that. You know, just that we make sure that, um, you know, the number of homeless that we have is unacceptable. I mean, that, that can be fixed. I mean, if we had the political will, and I'm hoping that coming out of this, that there will be a lot of political will that we can move forward on. One of the questions I keep getting all the time from non-architects and non-designers <laughs> is, do I see buildings getting thicker? <laughs> Meaning social distancing is going to make every hallway 12 feet wide, oh. that kind of idea. And Obviously, we're in the middle of this. It's still unfolding. Mm -hmm. what, what is your take on how buildings are going to change in response to both the pandemic and the, the time and place that we're in? I think it might be um, interesting. Like if you think about what I was saying earlier about the skyscrapers, that it would take 15 hours to get everybody into the building and then get them out. What if that's changed so that the top half of the floors are apartments and you just walk downstairs to your office, you know, so that you have more mixed use so you're not and then you're not getting on um, public transportation. I think first off we'll see that there will be a, a more people will be working remotely so that'll be like 50-50 so you're you'll have more space in the office because you're only in there a couple of days a week or you know so I think that will start. I read an interesting article about um, after the SARS um, pandemic in Hong Kong and a guy who was writing the article was there and he said you know for a long time I don't know if it was a year or what everybody was social distancing everybody was wearing their mask nobody was going out to eat you know it was like we are now and then all of a sudden one day he looked around and it was a back to normal so I think that um, at some point we will 
get back to pretty much normal. I think what might change a lot in the buildings is the um, mechanical systems, you know, the things that really are, are moving the air around, how we um, operable windows so that you can get it flushed out, you know, more that kind of stuff as opposed to we won't be in an office setting anymore. You get people who think that this new normal is going to stay forever. Or you get the opposite where people are like, no, this is so temporary. Like, right. I'm sure three months we'll be back to normal. So you get both ends mm -hmm. of the spectrum. Right. Well, and if you think about past pan pandemics, what has happened, you know, that the international movement was sort of a reaction to the, the flu pandemic to make everything clean and streamlined or the... Um, bubonic plague. I mean, the cities changed. They started to have indoor plumbing. There are some, some good outcomes from these. So, I saw a video of you using virtual reality, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the big headset. And it's, it's funny because my first instinct was, I've known your work as being this very climactically sensitive, vernacular appropriate type of work. And my first instinct was the juxtaposition of that with this modern super virtual reality helmet didn't jive, but then it, but in the, you know, the same sense, it made total sense because, because of the sensitivity you bring, of course you want to immerse your clients right. in this, right? Right. And so many clients um, can't read drawings. I remember one of the early projects, we started our firm in 1989 and we, we did AutoCAD at the time but we still did watercolors and we still do watercolor drawings to show our clients and 3D renderings and everything. And when I was doing residential, I, I would end up taping things off on the floor. Right. Just to give them a sense of, this is how big your dining room will be. Right. Because the drawings are meaningless. Right. Where do you see the AIA most likely going to help support like you have been doing? Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, as you end up leaving your year uh, as the president, how do you think this will all influence what you'll do next in your own practice or in your own work? I've been thinking about that second question a lot um, and I don't have an answer yet. It's like, what am I gonna do next? Cause it's, do I just go back and do door schedules or do I do something else? But doing something bigger, yeah, definitely something, um, something bigger. Um, and the first question was about how the AIA is, we really are looking at how, I think this will change how we do business a lot in the AIA because we've realized that we don't have to be flying to meet in person all the time, that we can do a lot remotely and just thinking about how sustainable that is for us not to be flying around all over the place. Not to say that we won't still need to meet in person on occasion, but I think that will change a lot and how we, um, I was talking to uh, the president of AIA Cleveland this morning, and she was saying how during this time she feels so much more connected to all the other components in Ohio because they're meeting more regularly. So I think it's bringing us together in different ways that is really good. Um, we will continue to to provide resources for our firms and our members that need them. You know, we've got tons on the website. With the AIA, most people, their main impact is at the local component. 
that's where your coworkers are. That's where you go to the social things. That's where you know everybody. And so we, it's really important to help our members at that level because that's their main touch point with the AIA. Yeah, and in regards to your answering your, the first question, <laughs> uh, the more personal, like what's next, doing uh -huh. something very big, what this moment needs is all of us to think as big as possible. I'm really thinking a, a lot about social justice for architecture. I mean, how can we um, make an impact there? Because there's a real opportunity here in South Carolina to make a difference there. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say if there's any architects listening to this and their firm has not made the 2030 commitment that they need to make the 2030 commitment and report their numbers this year. So that's um, what we need to happen. Yes, uh, and it's a big effort. My firm, we, you know, we spent a fair amount of time and resources getting it all together. But what's interesting about it is we are on track for our, to get to our carbon neutral targets. We are too. It's really interesting with us because a lot of our clients, that's not a big priority for them, but they want to have a backup generator. And we tell them, well, you know, if we put solar panels on your roof and a Tesla battery, you don't have to have a generator and that's usually the sale. So it's, uh, makes it pretty easy because we have to have um, on-site energy to make, to even get clothes here, so. Well, Jane, it's been such a pleasure to have you here on Care by Design and would love later in the year before you're leaving as the president of the AIA to maybe do a follow-up, a, a short sure. follow-up. Because um, it would be great to see what other initiatives that come out of this, uh, what's left of the year. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Care by Design with Eric Corey Freed and me, Eve Blossom, as your hosts. We look forward to our next interview this upcoming Tuesday. Visit us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Care by Design Pod, and there you can see additional show notes of each of our podcast interviews and additional posts on new podcast interviews. So tune in this Tuesday for our next Care by Design podcast. Hear us then.